0: I'm really excited for this series and really felt the Spirit of God lead us uh, into this series because, you know, we see, um, even at a psychosocial research, um, that our, arguably our most influential relationships are our family, uh, our family of origin. Uh, if you have children, your children, and those relationships, sibling relationships, our families have a great influence over us, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? Uh, and we see biblically, before God established the church, before he established the government, he established the family. So if I'm, if I'm, the, if I'm the devil and I want to disrupt the work of God on the earth, what am I going to try to disrupt first? The family. What am I going to try to do first? Break up marriages. Break up relationships between children and their parents. And that's why all of us, Probably have experienced a degree of family brokenness. You know, just this week I was thinking I had a, I got a paper cut. Um, you know, one of the worst places to get a paper cut is on the tip of your finger. You know what I'm talking about? You ever experienced that? Like when you like type, it hurts. You like use your phone, it hurts. There's certain cuts that hurt worse than others. Relationally, there are certain wounds that hurt worse than others, and family wounds tend to be the most painful. Would you agree? When, there, when, there's, when, there's, when there's hardship between uh, siblings or with a grandparent or with your parents or with your children. And here's my hope today. Um, we all probably have experienced a degree. And here's the re- reality. I hope today you feel affirmed because we'll look at a family that's written in the scriptures. I mean, the canonized word of God, the holy scriptures that weren't perfect. So as you think about your family and your family's imperfections, I hope you feel affirmed and relieved that you're not the only one. Uh, But here's the good news, that regardless of how much brokenness we experience in our family of origin, uh, in our family now, how many of our God is a restorer of broken things? Amen? Amen. He's a repairer of the breach, the scripture says. And uh, we're going to pray at the end of service, too. Uh, There are many people who... Who asked for prayer in this area. I'm going to give you a preview. Um, if you have any relationships in your family where there's tension, uh, where there's some brokenness, there's some, there's some dysfunction, there's some unhealth, um, we're going to pray uh, for God to do what only he can do at the end of service. And we're believing to see God bring healing to hearts. Amen. But before we get into the word, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, It's a lamp unto our feet and a light into our path. We pray as we open it up by the leadership of your Holy Spirit, God, that you would lead us. You would speak to us today. God, we thank you. We posture our hearts and our minds to receive from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 16 today. uh, And to give some context on, on where we are and uh, the narrative of our faith. This is a, the, we're looking at the life of Abram and Sarai, uh, later to be known Abraham and Sarah. If you're unfamiliar with the scriptures, Abraham would be known as the father of our faith. Uh, in Genesis 12, God speaks to him, go to the land that I will show you. He gives him a promise at the ripe young age of 75. Come on, uh, that he will be a father to many nations. He's like, but God, I ain't got no kids. Uh, he said, don't worry, I'm God. That's the Jeremy version. Um, And he gives his promise to Sarah, Sarai and Abram uh, to have a child and to be the father of many nations. Your descendants will be many. And also give context, um, as it would probably, like, let me just give context. Maybe you are 75 today. Um, As surprised as, as you would be if you found out you were pregnant, or if you have a 75-year-old parent as surprised as you would be if you found out your mom and dad were pregnant, or if your grandparents were 75 and as surprised as you would be if they were pregnant, people in that day would be surprised with a 75-year-old being pregnant then. Follow me? Uh, By 75, it would be expected you'd be a grandparent, uh, not becoming a parent. But where we are in the Scriptures from Genesis 12 to 16, 10 years have passed. So now we have Abram and Sarai in their mid-80s, still childless. And this is where we pick up um, in Genesis 16. Uh, verse 1, it says this Now Sarai, Abr- Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go and sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai took his wife, her Egyptian slave Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Sarah said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong that I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now she knows she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. And Sarah mistreated Hagar, and she fled from her. Now, let's just be real for a moment. What we just read, we would expect to see on a modern-day talk show. Come on, somebody. Right? This triangulation, like... Like, Sarai's like, you sleep with her. Then she's like, how dare you sleep with her? Well, you told me to sleep with her. You know, like, it's like, what is happening here, right? Who didn't, who said the Bible is not interesting? Come on, right? But it shows here that even in the midst of our brokenness, in our imperfections, here's Sarai getting tired of waiting. What does she say? I will build a family through Hagar. And let's just say this, we're all tempted at times when we're waiting on maybe a prayer to be answered by God. We're waiting on a promise from God. We're waiting for a dream to be fulfilled. If you are human, you face a temptation. Say, God, I've waited long enough to do it your way. I'm going to do it my way. And she had a moment of that. Say, you know what, I'll just have, I'll, I'll build this family you promised me, God, through Hagar. But here's what I want us to see, we're going to see in this story, that through even the brokenness, the the messiness of the situation, that God brings a beautiful restoration. And I want to talk today about how we can experience God's restorative power in the midst of our brokenness in our own families. And here's the first application I want us to take note of from this passage in order to experience that restorative power is that we have to first deal with our own disappointments and fears. See, Sarai naturally would have been disappointed here in this moment, uh, as you would be, as I would be, right? Ten years and no promise fulfilled. Ten years and what God said would happen hasn't happened. Delays can naturally turn into disappointments. But we have to be careful with disappointments because disappointments can actually distract us from the very purpose that God has for us. Uh, Disappointments can actually become detours in the will of God, you know. This week I was thinking of detours. Uh, Christine and I were away at a conference in Charleston, South Carolina, and we were driving down there. And we were have you have you driven? We drove down south on ninety five. You know that area of South Carolina you're driving on, where like there's nobody around. It's like no one lives off the exits right now. I'm talking about like on ninety five. It's like this is kind of scary. Um, there's like nothing around. Then you see south of the border. Come on, right? <laughs> Every time I pass south of the border, I'm like, how is that place still open? Um, I won't go into my, my theories on that, but um, the, the, we're driving down there and we're like, man, we're kind of like ready for some lunch. It's like two o'clock. So we're like, let's go off the exit. And we were feeling like healthy. So we were like, you know, but also a little bit of sweet. So like, let's, let's get like an acai bowl, like a smoothie. Uh, we're in the middle of nowhere, South Carolina. We get off the exit and it's like fried chicken. Fried chicken, Mexican fried chicken, fried chicken, right? It's like, it's like every fried chicken, you know, franchise you can think of, Zaxby's, Chick-fil-A, you know, it's all there. And, uh, I mean, I, I don't hate on fried chicken. It just, you know, it just don't sit well with me. Come on. Uh, on a side note, you know any food, when you eat it, you want to take a nap after it, it's probably not good for you. Come on, right? That's what fried chicken does for me. I'm like, why well, don't want to sleep for two hours now, right? It's delicious. Um, so, we went looking for an acai bowl uh, place, I had myself a little acai bowl here this morning, uh, has a little bit of strawberries and blueberries, whoops, uh, a little granola here, a little coconut shavings, a little bit of honey. So we, we get off the exit, and we found an acai bowl place, to our surprise. However, it was a 20-minute detour from where we were. Uh, we were like, we were really craving for some acai bowls, so we, we drove a 20-minute detour. Um, no no joke, um, it was a shock to our eyes when we saw it. The acai bowl and smoothie restaurant, true story, was connected to a gas station slash, slash liquor store. Um, we questioned the ingredients. What kind of acai is this? You know what I'm saying? I'm driving. I can't be, you know. Um, but we wanted acai bowl, so we, we went there and we had it. But here's what I want to say. It, it, it was a detour. It was a worthy detour, though. But here's a reality. If we're not careful, our disappointments in life, our disappointments with maybe the progress we're making vocationally, our disappointment with we thought we'd be married by now, but we're not even dating somebody, our disappointment that we thought, man, we'd be pregnant by now, but we're our third in vitro treatment, our disappointment with maybe even in our best efforts, our relationship with our, with our Father is not where we thought it would be, that if we're not careful, disappointments can distract us from God's purpose. And we can begin to wallow a little bit in those disappointments. I know I've been there. And your mind begins to kind of chase, kind of go with the disappointment. In fact, if we're not careful, disappointments can actually begin to even even deafen our ears to the voice of God. We have to be careful that we manage our emotions, our disappointments, our frustrations in a manner that doesn't take us away from what God's calling us to. So, what do we do with those disappointments? I think a great person to look to is David. All throughout the Psalms, he he writes and he expresses his disappointments to God. In Psalms 102, he he speaks to this um, when he says, This hear my prayer, Lord. Let me cry for help. Uh, Let me cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me when I'm in distress. Turn your ear to me when I call, answer me quickly. Here he is in in great distress. Here he is disappointed, and he's crying out to God. Can I tell you this very practically? Something you can do with your disappointments is, is, is let God know. Express your disappointments to God. And can I help you out? God already knows what you're disappointed about. He already knows what you're discouraged over. He already knows what you're frustrated about. Why don't you talk to him about it? The Bible actually says this, you can cast your cares upon him, and he will sustain you. He will do it. Cast your cares. Can I tell you to do one step further? Is Express your disappointments to a friend in the faith. A few months ago, I was was expressing a disappointment I had to a friend of mine, and and these words were such a ministry to my soul. He said to me, he said, you know, if that happened to me, I would be disappointed too. Have you ever had that moment where someone affirmed how you felt? And it just felt like you were seen. It felt like you were loved. That's all we encourage you. That, that's, that's one of the number one reasons we have next steps here at Catalyst. We want to help you to get connected into relationship because it's in those relationships we can walk in greater wholeness in God's purpose. So she was disappointed. But, but just kind of going in this story with Sarai, there may have been as well some natural fear. And here's what I mean. Fear of what people may have thought about her and Abram. Because mind you, 75, come on, she's a, she's a member of the AARP at this point. Come on. Right? Like she gets the senior citizen discount. And then she tells her friends, hey, guess what? She, she puts it on uh, Instagram. She's like, I'm, we're going to be pregnant. God said, you know, it's going to be amazing. Um, she like sent the email blast out. I'm registered to bye-bye, baby, you know. Uh, she posts pictures of her with maternity clothes on. How's this look? I'm thinking about this, you know, all of this, um, and, and then and then nothing happens for ten years, like ten years, nothing, like nothing, no, 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 even like maybe, like nothing, and 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 naturally, 85 years old, thinking like, all right, God, I ain't getting any younger. <laughs> And, and nothing. And what can happen if we're not careful? And I think what we see in this, there's a, there's a cycle, both written about in psychological journals and in uh, theological writings, called a shame, fear, and control cycle. And we see this actually playing out in Sarah's life. Here's how it plays out that we feel shame about something in our life. Shame, in her context, I'm not pregnant yet, and God said I would be. Fear, then. What are people going to think about me if I, if, I, if I don't have this baby? If, this, if, like, this doesn't happen, what are they going to think about me? And then control. What is she to control it? I'll build a family through Hagar. I'll do it my way. And here's, here's what's called a cycle because when you engage in it, let's, let's use another example. Let's say you have shame over the fact that you thought maybe you'd be married by now. All of your friends from college are married uh, you're not even dating anybody. Maybe you're like, I feel shame about that. Then there's maybe fear. What will people think? Fear, will I ever get married? And then control can be, you know what? I'm going to do it my way. I've been waiting on God. I've been trying to do it God's way. Or control. Maybe you, you kind, of, r- kind of avoid conversations about relationships with your family and friends. And what can happen is that shame, fear, control cycle, it leads to more shame. And it becomes this vicious cycle. Or you have shame over an area of sin in your life. Maybe an area of your own brokenness. And you haven't told anybody about that. So you have fear of somebody finding out of this addiction, this struggle, this sin pattern. And then you control by, by not letting anybody ever know. Like no one knows. That's why we say here at Catalyst, you take the mask off. Because taking the mask off with someone breaks the cycle of shame, fear, and control. Because if not, the enemy keeps taking you down that path and shame keeps growing. And how many of the Bible says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ? In other words, Christ did not come to put shame on you. He came to take shame off you. And one of the ways to do that is through community and relationship. When there's somebody in your life, can I tell you one of the most valuable relationships you can have in your life is somebody who knows (coughs) everything. Everything about you. The good, the bad, the ugly, and the really ugly. Like the nasty parts of you, you wish nobody ever knew. Can I tell you, it'll release shame off you when somebody knows it about you and they still love you. It will do something for your soul, nothing else can. How we can also combat fear. You know, it says here in Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man will prove to be a snare, the scripture says, a, a trap. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. In other words, when we, when we fear rejection from people, when we fear what other, other people are going to think about me, the Bible says it is a trap. But trusting in the Lord is kept safe. David wrote in Psalms 52 about this whole idea of being fearful. Sorry, Psalm 56. He says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? I love this. He starts off saying, when I'm afraid, I put my trust or my weight in you. It's in your word that I praise. And then here's how he ends it. What can mere mortals do to me? Can I tell you a way that you can combat fear in your life? Because also, let me just say this, when we allow fear of any sort, which we all experience fear, we allow fear of any type of fear to to run loose in our life, it leads to bad decisions in our life. Have you ever seen those around like the fall time, October? They'll show these videos on the news and stuff. Have you ever seen those, those videos of someone at a haunted house or haunted maze, and they're walking, and they're like a, they're a grown man, and then someone jumps out of the corner, and out of their fear, they punch the person in the throat? You know what I'm talking about? It's like the person's are criminal defense attorney, right? Like very accomplished, wise, intelligent. But that amygdala starts firing, and their first response is like, boom, like just jab, right? Why? Because you're a fear response. Like, when, you, when you're fearful, you're irrational. Like, the amygdala in your brain, like, fires off, and he tells your prefrontal cortex, I got this one, right? If you don't know, your prefrontal cortex is where your reasoning is. <laughs> Amygdala's like, let me get this one. They're like, amygdala, every time you get involved, things get crazy. I know. Watch. You know? <laughs> The amygdala that part of your, your body, that your, your, like your, your friend group, that you're always like, I don't know what he's going to do tonight. You know what I mean? That's your amygdala. But, but you, he, he responds. So here's why. Listen, that's a context of, of being fearful of, of a haunted house. Like when you have a fear of rejection in the same way, you're acting irrationally. You'll do things you later regret. Sarai did something she would later regret by saying go sleep with Hagar. You gotta be mindful of allowing fear to run amok. So how do we combat fear? What well, does David said? I trust in your word. Can I tell you one of the most fruitful and beneficial things that you can do as a follower of Jesus is to read the word of God. Every day, read the word of God. Monday, read the word of God. Tuesday, read the word of God. Wednesday, read the word of God. Thursday, read the word of God. Friday, read the word of God. Saturday, read the word of God. Sunday come and sit under the teaching of the Word of God. Can I tell you, if the only time you read or hear the Word of God is out of my mouth on Sundays, the devil will eat your lunch Monday through Saturday. Amen. It's called the sword of the Spirit for a reason. You have been given spiritual weaponry, wield it. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians ten four, that it has the power to demolish strongholds. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power. I love what Leonard Ravenhill said. A man who is intimate with God is not intimidated by man. It will break the fear of man off you. It'll break the fear of rejection off. You know why? Because when you read the word of God, you realize how loved you are by God. You realize how valuable you are in the sight of God. You realize the thoughts that God has about you and who God really is. So you think to yourself, listen, there is no person, there is no demon who can come against me because I know who my God is and I know who I am in Christ. Read the word of God. Come on, tomorrow morning, pull out that sword. Don't bring a real one to work. Bring the word of God in your mind, okay? I don't want somebody writing me saying, Pastor, I brought a sword to work, and now they're firing me. They should. No. <laughs> so number two, number two. So number one, you deal with your disappointments. Number two, you have to deconstruct your family dynamic. You have to deconstruct your family dynamic. Let me speak to this. So Abram's sitting there, and Sarah is like, hey, you sleep with Hagar. And Abram is like, all right. Now let's just, for a moment, all right? Maybe you're married, you can put yourself in this context. Maybe you're not married, but you can still put yourself in that context. Like your spouse tells you to sleep with someone who's not there, not them. Wouldn't you think for a moment a rational person would be like, are you sure? Do you know what you're saying? (laughs) Do you mean what you're saying? This is crazy. Right? Now, just to give context culturally, um, it was not uncommon for them to sleep with their servants. That wasn't completely uncommon. Uh, but Abraham, Abraham and Sarai were the people of God. And how many of you know as the people of God, we don't hold ourselves to cultural standards. We hold ourselves to a higher standard. That's why we don't look to, what's the culture doing around us? Let's do that. No, we have the word of God, which is an unchanging standard, which is the, actually the very best for our life. So here, here he does, he gives in. He becomes a passive participant. And then when she kind of says, now you're responsible, he's like, what, me? No. <laughs> so Abram, you already, you already stepped into a brother, right? He, he's a passive participant. And here's what will happen if we're not careful. If we don't begin to unpack and deconstruct and understand what's actually happening in our family dynamic, listen to this, we are susceptible to repeat the same patterns, Last week, Christina mentioned this, how, how you'll see families, Well, they'll be like, well, the grandfather had a problem with alcohol. The father had a problem with alcohol. Now the son has a problem with alcohol. The grandmother, she meant her and the grandfather divorced. Parents divorced. Now we're divorced three times. Please hear this. There's no condemnation. Here's what I'm saying, though. If we're not intentional, we are susceptible to repeat the same destructive patterns. So what do we do? We have to understand it. Let me also share this on the flip side. This is also a danger. Sometimes we react to our family dynamic, especially dysfunction, by reacting and doing the opposite thing. And we think if we do the opposite thing, that's the good thing. But sometimes it's the other side of the same coin. For example, let's say, for example, we grew up in a home and your dad worked all the time. He felt like that as a child. He wasn't there for your games. Maybe it was a work-centric home. So you react by then becoming a family-centric home. And can I tell you, it might culturally look healthier, but listen, any home that's not Christ-centered will eventually become unhealthy. Yeah. So, so there's not, it's the same, two sides of the same coin, right? So be careful that you don't, you don't begin to respond. Or maybe you grew up in a home where you didn't have much financially, and maybe you react. Maybe you thought there wasn't, my parents didn't have much ambition, they didn't work hard. So you react Yes, a good work ethic is healthy and God honoring, but you allow it to become an idol. Because you didn't have much growing up, now that very thing becomes what you seek for. Are you following me? You have to unpack it. How do you unpack it? As you begin to really think through it, and I think step back for a moment. And here's what, here's what Peter says. I think this helps us. In 1 Peter, I think it's 3 8. I think we have it on the screens. He says, All of you be like-minded. Be sympathetic. That word sympathetic means to feel with. Love one another. Be compassionate. Be humble. It's to feel with your family. Let me help you. Let's just say this. Let's say your father had an issue with alcohol. Let me all say this as well. I know that today there's some heavier topics we're talking about. You're like, I shouldn't have brought my friend today. Uh, (laughs) But how many of you know, listen, sometimes the very things you don't want to talk about we have to talk about the very things that we want. I said this last service. Sometimes, just the part of scripture we don't want to read is the very things we need to read. It's like you skip the parts of scripture that says about forgiveness. You're like, okay, I don't need that, Jesus. Yeah, you, you need that. So, 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 but maybe, maybe your father, he had an issue with drinking. Maybe step back for a moment and say, you know what? Perhaps the reason my father, now you're not excusing, you're not excusing the wrong he committed. This is important. But you step back and say, you know what? He grew up in a home that was abusive. And maybe alcohol was an escape to numb the pain on the inside because he didn't have the proper emotional tools to deal with it. Or maybe you, your mother was anxious and her anxiety been manifested in being overly controlling. Maybe even subconsciously. She wasn't even fully aware of it. But maybe you step back for a moment and say the reason she was anxious because there was much instability in the home. They didn't know some nights when dad would come home. And as a little girl, it made her very anxious at a subconscious level. She wasn't even fully aware of it. Are you following me? When you begin to deconstruct your family dynamic and begin to understand, can I tell you this? Paul, Peter says, be sympathetic and then be compassionate. When you become empathetic, you become more compassionate. When you can understand, that's why they had those issues. That's why he's so angry. Now, listen, please hear this. There's also a temptation sometimes when we do this to say, man, my dad had a hard life. And we can dismiss the dysfunction we grew up in. Now, here's why that's also unhealthy. Because if you don't assign appropriate blame, then you cannot forgive them. It's when you say, hey, I understand but the way you handled it was still wrong. But I forgive you anyway. The power of the cross of Christ. Because if we're not careful, if we just dismiss it, ah, you know what? It's not that big of a deal anyway. He had a hard life. Listen, that you never actually appropriately forgive them for the wrong they've done. And it makes you susceptible to repeat the very same patterns in your life. Are you following me? It's important that we begin to understand and begin to pull apart how, how did this happen so we can grow in compassion for them and love them. Henry Ward Beecher says compassion will cure more sins than condemnation. Yes. When you become empathetic towards them, you become compassionate for them. So you're no longer condemning your brother for what he did. You have compassion for your brother. Again, now, here's the next, next part I want, you to, I want to take note of. This might be hard for some people, and I understand that, but this is important. As I think we can have compassion for them and have empathy for them, but we still need to establish healthy boundaries even with our family. Paul says this, bad company corrupts good character. Now, let me say it this way. I'm not saying your family's bad company, um, but I'm saying is the company you keep shapes the character you have, which your, your family has shaped your character, whether or not you, you consciously knew that or not because of just growing up in a household with family. Now there are times that your family's dysfunction, you need to have healthy boundaries because you value yourself and them. Let me say this, loving your family is not letting your family walk all over you. Being a loving son or daughter or brother or sister or parent is not allowing them to say whatever they want to you. You know why? You were made in the image of God. So even if you have a hard time defending yourself, defend the very image of God. Because you are his child and they are his child. So you know what you just say when, you're, when your father maybe has a drinking issue, and maybe you're hanging out with him and he starts drinking and you're, you get uncomfortable? You say, hey dad, if you're gonna do that, I, I'm, I'm gonna leave. So when your mother says those words that hurt and they're saying, hey mom, I love you, but I'm not gonna let you talk to me that way. You, you do it in a God-honoring way. Some of you might be thinking to yourself, man, thank God, I've been wanting to cut off my brother for years. No, don't cut them out of your life. <laughs> I'm not saying that. That's unhealthy reaction. Can I tell you, two ends of the continuum that are unhealthy is letting someone in your family walk all over you and abuse you. I'm not saying just physically, with with their words, emotionally. That's not honoring to God or them or yourself. On the flip side, just saying, you know what? I'm never going home again for the holidays. I'm never going to talk to my brother again. That's also not God-honoring. Are you following me, church? There's a better way. I was reminded some years ago, I was, uh, we were at this, right after the church had started, we were at this um, children's museum with my, my kids, and uh, Judah was three years old, and, and, and Christina was with Abby and Hannah over on one side, and then we were on the side of the museum. They literally had, it was really cool, like a half of an airplane in the museum. Um, so, like, the kids could go in and act they their passengers or pilots or stewards or stewards. It's really cool. So he's, like, and they have these, like, rolling suitcases. So he's, like, you know, walking in the airplane, you know, like, having a great time. So I'm watching it from, like, you know, let's say the back of the room is where he was. So I'm watching it from this, you know, I'm kind of leaned up against the wall watching him. So I watch him with this. He had this suitcase. And I see this little girl come up to him. And let's say, you know, you're, you're Judah in this, in this context. She comes up, she looks at him in the face, she snatches at him and says, I watch this happening. And I'm like, where's her father? You know what I'm saying? Any other parents, if your kid's getting mistreated, you're like, who's your daddy? I'm going to go punch him in the throat right now, you know? <laughs> See, that's why I need Jesus, people, right? Um, I may have asked some kids where their father is just in case. I didn't act on it. But I had the fault. Um, some of you are judging me right now, but that's okay. So he, so he later comes and walks around, around to, to me. I said, hey, Judah, come here, come here, come here. I said, hey, bud. I got down and said, like, um, that girl, when she took the suitcase from you, were you done with the suitcase? No. Did, did you give her the suitcase? No. Son, did she take the suitcase from you? Yeah. Okay, where's her daddy? No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) So I said to him, I said, Judah, listen. I said, Judah, if someone tries to take something from you, you look at them and you just say politely but firmly, I'm not done playing with this yet. So he gets up, and I see him walk across. The girl has a suitcase. And all I see is three-year-old Judah walk over He says something to her and takes it back. (laughs) Um, And now it's funny, because I talk about it. Ever since that moment, you can't take anything from Judah. I'm telling you, he will stand up to you. Um, But listen, listen, listen to me. It was honoring to that girl and to Judah to set a boundary. Because that girl needs to learn, you can't just take stuff from people. Are you hearing me? Your dad needs to learn he can't treat you that way. Your brother needs to know he can't do that to you. Your children need to know they can't speak that way to their parent. Now, I know this gets uncomfortable, but I'm telling you, establishing healthy boundaries is one of the most helpful things you can do for your soul, one of the most healthy things you can do for them, and one of the most honoring things you can do to God for your family. Amen? We have to deconstruct our family dynamic, understand it so we can set healthy boundaries, healthy in a God-honoring way. Here's the third and final point. We have to deal with our own disappointments and our fears. We have to then deconstruct our family dynamic, set some healthy boundaries, understand our family, why is it this way, and then deepen my dependence on God. Let me just say this too why it's important that you sit under the teaching of the Word, you read the Word, because there actually may actually be dysfunctional patterns in your family that you grew up thinking were normal, that are actually dysfunctional and not God-honoring. It's not until you read the Word of God and understand the ways of God that you actually realize that wasn't right. And I know it can get very uncomfortable. That's why it's so important we read the word of God. Can I tell you, as a child of God, as a follower of Jesus, our allegiance is to God and the ways of Christ above anything else, including our family. Amen? Amen. Four people agree with me. That's okay. That's all I need. But it's true. It's true deepen our dependence on God. Verse 7 says this, The angel of the Lord then found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I love how God asks a question he already knows. Come on, anybody else ever knows that? Like, you're God, you know this. But he wants a conversation with her. She says, I'm running away from my mistress Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord says, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much they will be too numerous to count. Now, can I be honest? I read this. I think to myself, why is it this angel sent by God is telling her to go back and submit to Sarai? Like Sarai took advantage of her. Sarai mistreated her. And he says, I want you to go back and submit to her. As I just read, one of the best ways to interpret Scripture is with Scripture. Just a side note. And if you look all throughout the Scripture, Old and New Testament, it's very clear that when we humble ourselves, it invites the power and the hand of God into a situation. So even though Hagar was the recipient of mistreatment, God in this moment says, Hagar, it's through you and your humility that my power will be demonstrated because she goes back into the situation and we're going to see what happens as God brings restoration. Here's what the Bible says in Proverbs 18:12, before destruction that word in the Hebrew is the word crushing, a man's heart is haughty or prideful. But humility comes before honor, before that word honor is glory, splendor, blessing. Here's the words of Jesus. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That word humble means to bring low. Peter says in 1 Peter 5 that when you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, he will lift you up. How many want the hand of God on your life? You want God to exalt you. You want the blessing of God on your life. What's very clear in the scriptures, you humble yourself. You bring yourself low. Can I be practical on this for a moment? To be prideful sometimes when it comes to family and family dysfunction and brokenness and tension and relational dynamic. Pride can demonstrate itself by, and I've been guilty of this, I'll admit it is that you think in seeing somebody else's dysfunction that you are how somewhat more righteous than them. I'm the better sibling. Come on, anybody ever thought that? Now, I know I'm the favorite sibling, but I'm not the better sibling. I'm just kidding. But but when we think we're somehow better than them, you know what humility is? Humility, you recognize your own brokenness. Can I tell you, you are loved by God, but can we be honest for a moment? We need God. Like, we are broken without God. Can I get amen? I want to be clear on that theologically. Like, without Christ, Paul says, our righteousness, my goodness, my morality, it's like nothing. But we are the righteousness of God in Christ. Thank you, Jesus. So we need him. The Bible says he loves a broken and contrite heart. He loves it when we're broken and we admit, God, I need you. And we're humble. You know, a few uh, months ago, I'm not proud of this. Some of you will judge me for this, but I'm okay with that. I, uh, I had a moment. I have a uh, Honda Pilot. I was pulling out of a parking spot, and I slammed into an inanimate object. Um, it didn't move. And it uh, smashed my rear window and damaged the body of my car. Um, Or as my youngest, Abigail, said, Daddy broke his car. Um, And I found out she was telling people, I said, Thank you, Abby, for smearing my name all across the community by saying Daddy broke the car. Um, But she ain't lying. (laughs) I broke that thing. Um, So I had to bring it to someone who could fix it. I had to bring it to a body shop. Who knows how to put the rear window in? Um, Because my extent of car knowledge goes to about filling my gas tank up. Come on, somebody. Anybody else with me? It's like, you want me to fill a gas tank up? I got you. Anything else, I don't got you. I got friends, though, okay? So I had to go to this body shop. I had to bring my broken car to this body shop who could fix it. And uh, in the same way, can I tell you this? The Bible says that God is a repairer of the breach, He's a restorer of broken things. Can I tell you, you in and of yourself may not be able to fix the brokenness in your family, in your marriage, but God can. And through humility, we bring it to him. Here's what humility looks like in action. Very simply, I got three words for you. It looks like dependence, depending on God. Hagar, in that moment, she trusted God and not her feeling. By doing what God asked her to do, she went back to Abram and Sarai. You know what dependence also looks like? You praying to God about that situation. That family relationship that has some tension, that has some dysfunction. Let me just ask you this. When's the last time you prayed about it? When's the last time you prayed for your father? You prayed about your sister. You prayed for your child who is distant from you. Second, repentance. Repentance. You acknowledging your own sin. Maybe the sin is simply you've been prideful, thinking that somehow you are better than them because of the dysfunction you've witnessed. But what ask God, God, reveal, are there any sin in my own heart towards my family? It might also mean you confessing that sin to them and say, would you forgive me? I've been wrong. Lastly is service. Now I'm not just saying necessarily doing acts of service, more of a posture of your heart. Say, I'm here to serve my family, to love my family. How can I do that? C.S. Lewis said this. I love this quote. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. I think apply it to your family. Genesis 16, 13, and 15. We're going to close with this. She then, and this is Hagar speaking to the Lord. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. She said, you are. Are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born." In this moment, Hagar names God. Do you know this is the first instance in all of Scripture that God is named? And he's named by an Egyptian servant named Hagar some of you in this, in this story, I'm about to close so the worship team can come. Some of you in this story, you read this, and you, maybe you relate somewhat to Sarai. Maybe you've done some things out of your own fear and insecurity. Maybe you've done some things out of, out of your, your own disappointment. Maybe that's hurt other people in your family. Or, or maybe you relate to Abram, that you haven't been an active aggressor, but you participated passively. Maybe you haven't set boundaries that you should set. Maybe you've allowed some things to happen because they're family that really it shouldn't have been allowed. Or maybe some of you in the room, you feel like Hagar. You feel like you've been the one who've been, who's been mistreated. You are the one who feels like you've been an outcast. You've, you've been distanced. And can I just speak to the last group for a moment? That regardless of what's happened to you, Regardless of how seen or unseen, how valued or not valued you've been by your parents, by your siblings, by your children. Can I tell you this this morning? God sees you right where you are. And he sees you, and he's this morning, I want you to receive this. He is saying, I love you without condition. I value you immensely. You have infinite worth in the eyes of God. That's what he did to Hagar here in this moment. Someone who, who was forgotten by others. God says, I see you right where you are. And what happens? She goes back. And to give context, she, God restores a blessing to her life because she gives birth to Ishmael. To give context, if you don't know who Ishmael is, he became a very skilled hunter and warrior. He gave birth to, or he didn't give birth, he had 12 children. 12 men, 12 boys, who became princes of nomadic Arab nations. Remember God's promise to her? You'll have many descendants. God blessed Hagar. How many of you know God can take a broken situation and bring blessing to it and through it? God can redeem anything. There is nothing that is beyond the reach and blessing and favor and grace of God. And he also to sarai and abram you could say they don't deserve it they're the ones who got in this mess or aren't you grateful that god doesn't give you what you deserve aren't you grateful that god's better to you than you would ever deserve or could ever earn 15 years later abram and sarai have the son isaac the promise comes to fruition. They become the mother and father of many nations and of our faith. Here's what I want you to hear. I want you to hear this. In the midst of broken humanity, manifesting in a family, by the grace and power of God, he brought restoration and redemption like only he can.